Join me, Nina Lockwood, as I talk with people who express their creativity in ways that can inspire the rest of us to recognize our own creativity. Because creativity is not just the domain of a select few. It's who we all are. And if you enjoy these conversations, please like, subscribe, and share them. Thank you. Hello, and welcome once again to Creativity Conversations. This is, I think, episode 51, and I have a really wonderful, interesting guest today, Mike Unrau. Mike, nice to see you here. Nice to see you as well. Thank you. And as we usually do in this conversation of deconstructing and expanding the idea of creativity, I'm going to start with Mike's bio, and then we'll just see how the conversation unfolds. Michael has spent the last five years investigating creativity from an ontological, complex systems, and transdisciplinary lens. So we'll need to find out more about that. Completing his PhD in creativity and social innovation, Michael has a particular focus on how creative mindfulness impacts complex social challenges like collective trauma and climate change. Michael teaches social innovation at Mount Royal University, was an adjunct professor at University of Calgary, and has held international fellowships and facilitative creative projects around the world, including a mini social lab in India. His main interest is finding and accessing creativity in everyone through a complex systems lens to generate social innovations for societal transformation. And just a little bit of Mike's background. Mike has also been a lay monk in, Buddhist, in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand, co-founded a physical theater company, is a published poet, songwriter, and photographer, and was a host for the TV show Active Traveler. He facilitates expressive arts, living inquiries, mindfulness, EFT, and is a certified transformational arts facilitator. Wow. <laughs> Lots of stuff. <laughs> Lots of really interesting stuff. So maybe we can start by having you unpack that first sentence of what you've been investigating on um, from an ontological and complex systems perspective, the nature of creativity. Absolutely. I I guess one of the things about creativity for me, like many people perhaps, is that there's this sense, okay, creativity has something to do with art, right, on some level. And yet, I think a lot of us know that it's it's more than that on some on some level as well. Like it's there's that creative piece that we see. I can see in the paintings and the creative pieces in the background of your room there. That when we feel creative, it is expressed through artwork and pieces. And so I was really curious, but creativity seems to me more than that. And I wanted to really go into the heart of where creativity was. Like what actually is creativity? And um, so I started my research in that vein, and then to, of course, use the findings of that into how that can be applied socially for social complex challenges. So the ontological part, um, which is kind of a, 
philosophical term essentially is saying that the very nature of reality, like, does creativity on some level have something to do with the very nature of the reality we see around us, including plants that grow, um, social movements and change, like what we're seeing right now with um, Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement, and these really important social changes that are happening in the world. Is there, is there creativity involved in that as well? But also, personally, like, do I experience creativity, not only as an artist, but let's say I'm a scientist. Let's say I don't create paintings. Can I be creative in that way as well? Or is creativity connected to how I think or how I feel or how I see the world? And so that's the ontological part, is it's like the very fabric of the nature of reality. Is that connected to creativity in some way? And some people explore this through mindfulness or meditation, you know, maybe a, a monk in a cave somewhere. But I think we also experience it right here in the room. And as I'm sitting here with you, it is flowing, it is moving within us, through us. And so that's something that was really curious for me to investigate. And the next part, the complex systems part, is, of course, that... Um, Things aren't as simple sometimes as, as we see uh, in the sense that, um, you know, this equals that. Is that always true that, uh, you know, I see you, for example, can I make automatic assumptions that, oh, well, Nina has a certain disposition, so therefore she equals this in my mind. I think, I think it's not as easy to label a person as simple as, oh, well, she's like this, or therefore she must be like this. Um, I think we're infinitely more complex than that on one level and then on another level there's a really beautiful connected simplicity to all of us mm. and we know that when we see people um, hurt or in a trauma situation there's this intuitive instinctual part of us that reaches out to connect to another human being we see it in children wanting to connect to their mother or their father just the very nature of love somehow is universal. And we know that from our experience, but also intuitively. But it's complex. It's, it's not as an equal sign, you could say. Mm -hmm. um, and so complex systems look at how consciousness is complex, has complexity, sh I should say, to it. Um, but also biology. And all really complex systems means is that it's not linear, it's not an equal sign. It can take really wild and interesting divergent paths. And we also see that in nature, um, the, we're told the universe is expanding. Right? We hear this from the scientists, the universe is constantly expanding. And we also see from an evolutionary point of view, if that's the mindset that we choose to uh, come from, is that life started very simply and now it's moving to more complex forms. So human beings, from intelligence to the way that our bodies work, is incredibly complex compared to very simple life forms like um, virus. It's, it's complex in a certain nature, but it's also very simple in another way. So that's, that's looking at complexity and how is creativity connected to all that? And it turns out it's very much connected to all of that. Um, and then the last part, transdisciplinary, all that means is that um, We've probably heard the term interdisciplinary, and, and that just means if there's a discipline of thinking or a discipline of research or a discipline of life, we could say, there may be another one. And interdisciplinary means what's in between the two. Transdisciplinary means what's in between the two and what goes beyond it. So it's sort of like 
what is the next new way of thinking or the next new way of seeing the world that's different than what currently is. Mm -hmm. So these three elements of creativity, I, I, I don't believe creativity is in a box. It's like, oh, it's only for artists or it's only for scientists. Um, and it's also deeply personal. That's the ontological part. And it's also really complex. It's not an equal sign. It's not, oh, well, this equals that. But there's a certain simplicity to it in the sense that um, when we get right down to the very ground of our experience, creativity is there. Could you say that it's innate? Because it doesn't seem like it's, I mean, it, it, you can describe it as a skill that could be developed, but even prior to that, the skill has got to be there. The, the potential for it has to be there. So whether it's a complex system or a simple system, the, the capacity, the possibility of it already exists. It's pre-existing. Yeah, yeah. I, I would generally agree with that for sure. Is that, um, you know, for, for a skill to be developed, it takes focus and dedication and um, a certain amount of um, um, discipline. But at the same time, it, it, there's a sense that it, it's already here. It just has to be discovered in a way. It just has to be peeled back and revealed. And from a personal point of view, certainly we all have our um, psychological and personal hiccups. <laughs> Uh, the things that hold us back, that block us from from living that fully embraced lifestyle that many of us crave, and maybe have even had at one point, but you know, through being becoming a parent or maybe losing a loved one, that we we hold these hurts inside, and so then these become our limitations in a way from expressing what intuitively and creatively moves through us. So. Uh, absolutely. Um, sometimes it's even habit. Uh, sometimes it's trauma that, that holds us back from our past. But whatever it is, certainly what's underneath that is moving. This movement, it's dynamic in a sense. This movement is not only creative, I found, or at least I discovered in some of my research and through my years of personal experience and even, yes, sitting in a in a, on a mat, a meditation mat, as a, as a lay monk in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand, certainly discovering it as it's moving through me. And that is this transformation. And that's really what I experience, or I understand creativity to be, is a dynamic transformation from one state to another. So one could say, well, we're always in dynamic transformation, Mike. And I would say, yeah, that's it. We are. Life is always transforming, and so therefore creativity is the driver that transforms. Um, so if creativity is the driver that transforms, it's processual in the sense it's a process, and there's a body of work, um, a philosophy called process theory, mm -hmm. that uh, looks at that. A gentleman named uh, Alfred North Whitehead really brought that into, into a very articulated form back in the early 1900s, because he and others like M. Henri Bergson, a French philosopher, also noticed that life is transforming. It's moving. It's, it's, it's in change. Ceaseless change was the terms that they would use. 
So if that's the case, which I really see that it is, then creativity is everywhere. Our, our skin is in creative transformation. Our, uh, the plants outside are in creative transformation. Um, and mostly our being is transforming into a becoming, which basically means we are becoming individuals. There's a becomingness to us. We're becoming somebody new every day. So then the question becomes as an individual, what am I holding on to from the past that limits the natural, the already occurring process of becoming a fully embraced and thriving individual? And so then we start to look at these, these limiters. Um, sometimes it's thoughts, sometimes it's our past, sometimes it's the, the, the conditions we're living in. Um, but but that is a process that is already happening. We can look to nature and see it. So then what I was doing in my research is I actually went in and studied the chemistry and the physics of change. And um, I love- Say more about that. <laughs> so uh, I was really curious, does, if, if this really is transdisciplinary, if this does exist in all these different disciplines, can we find it in the science? And absolutely, there's different terms um, emergence theory is a term that tends to be linked to some of the sciences. Although even in the sciences, people are very wary of emergent theory. They're just like, I don't know. It's a little bit too woo-woo for me right. is, the, is the scientific term. I love how uh, sometimes scientific individuals or people will use woo-woo, which is not a scientific term, but use that to argue that this is not scientific. Um, so... So there's emergent theory, but I also looked at chemistry and um, particularly nonlinear dynamics, which um, I started to, to settle down right into entropy theory, and which is the um, uh, thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics looks at entropy. And we've heard this term perhaps here and there, but all entropy means um, although there's two ways to look at entropy. One is very scientifically, there's a formula for entropy. But it essentially, as um, some individuals in the 1930s, 1940s discovered, is it kind of means disorder. So if you take a box of a chemical solution, it will naturally move from order, which could be a concentrated form of the chemical solution, and will disperse into disorder. The classic example is our, our, ch our children's bedrooms, right? We... Uh, okay we've got to clean your room by the, the end of the weekend okay okay i'll clean my room so then they clean the room and it's nice and clean and entropy is the, the process by which it gets disorderly again it could be a very quick entropy a very high rate of entropy it happens in a few hours maybe it's a few days maybe it's a week so entropy is disorder and we see that in the world around us you take an egg and it's you know very ordered it's got a structure to it and you crack open the egg and then it goes under disorder. <laughs> it starts to break apart, you scramble it, and it creates all this beautiful chaos. Um, so then there's a, this disordering process that we see in the world, like a star exploding, a supernova, is a disordering because the star is this concentrated ordered form and then it explodes into um, disorder. But there's also an oppositional process that balances disorder, entropy. Now, this is where it gets interesting in the sciences is that um, 
pretty much universally, people will use the term entropy for disordering. Um, in informational sciences, it'll be like a communication entropy, which is looked at a little bit different than, say, in, in, um, in chemistry or in physics, when we're looking at a more physical base or a structural base entropy. But where the sciences and where the humanities and everybody else is very divergent is in its oppositional process, which is essentially ordering. So there's disordering and then there's ordering. And people haven't, um, the, the, the world in terms of academics or even in practical use doesn't really have a common term for this oppositional process that's happening in the world all around us because we notice not everything is disorder. Like look at the telecommunication system. It's, it's vastly ordered. We can call some, I can call you on the internet right now. And within splits of a second, I can see you and you can see me. We can have this lovely conversation, but um, ordering. Uh, so it's all around us. So we know that, that, that disorder happens, but we also see that order is happening. These two processes are in a balance. Now, the ancient religions have seen this for millennia, you know, Shiva and Brahma. The, I, just, I was thinking that same thing. Right? Destruction. Like Shiva represents destruction and the creator is, is, is creation. So we've seen that these two massive processes are happening and the religions have, have put their fingers on it. Um, and the scientists, you know, it takes a few millennia, but they're, they're getting caught up to it as well. And they go, oh, well, we're going to call it entropy. And then what's this oppositional term? And so some people call it negative entropy or negentropy. And then other people will use different terms to sort of more or less say the same thing. And that's that a system needs to exchange information with its environment. Um, and when it does, it displaces entropy. So it takes, you could say it, it removes the waste of the system, the disorder of the system into the environment. And it needs a, a, a reciprocated input back into the system. So you think of a deer, a deer has waste, <laughs> but then it also eats. So that's a system that is undergoing entropy and negentropy back and forth. Now, what makes it creative is that, what makes it creativity is that it's always ultimately new. Now, a deer may eat grass or leaves, but it will do it in different ways depending on its circumstance. So if a bear comes, it may need to run away and try something different that it hasn't tried before. Um, evolution is a classic way to look at creativity because over millennia, um, a species will slowly adapt to its environment and try something new and literally become a new species as a result. So this process from disordering to ordering, we see it everywhere in the sciences. And we also see it in the social sciences as well. And that's where uh, you could call social creativity or social innovation, which is what I also studied, comes into play. Is that, oh wow, groups of people are doing things that are new as well. And we can look at that as a system that also exchanges information with its environment. And that it also needs to um, have new processes so that it can deal with the complexities of the world around it. So climate change or what happened when George Floyd was killed, right? This uproar happened. And so there's this call for new change to happen in our world so that people can be treated more equally and with equity and fairness and respect and love, which is actually intuitive 
to who we are. So this call for change in society is social innovation. And that's that creativity arising in the social world around us. And we also feel it in ourselves as well. We feel that, um, you know, I had a, a trauma perhaps. And in my case, I have experienced that in the past. And so then it's like there's this calling that upsurges that actually has nothing to do with me. <laughs> it happens. But the, the, the question is, will I listen? Will I listen to this call of creativity that is actually seeking transformation naturally? So then the question is, can I hear it? Can I listen to it? Can I respond to it? And can I move with it? Oh, that's really yummy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you were describing that call, it just seems to me that that's a call that call to love, that creativity, there's an aspect mm. of creativity that has love as its nature. Because Absolutely. if we're working, uh, our intention is to be, to really evolve, if that is something that we do, that what is that born out of but love? Mm. Yeah, and, and indeed, uh, you know, this, this, this being into becoming, right? mm. this, this, this beingness, we could say, is, is love. It's consciousness, God, mm. uh, the infinite, the, the creative intelligence, whatever we want to term that. And, and love, you know, we hear terms like God is love. And yet there's other ways that people use the term God. That's not necessarily love. So we know that there's this oppositional nature as well somehow. But yet, when we really go down into the deepest parts of ourselves, love feels the most connected. It feels, it feels the most expansive, you could say. It feels the most emergent. It yeah. feels the most creative. When I come from a place of love, creativity seems to be everywhere. And yet there is this oppositional force in the world. So then what is that oppositional force, this destruction? This, um, these limitations that seem to hold us or all of us as a culture, a society back. And that, we could say, um, if this consciousness or if this love is universal, then its opposite, you could say, is the opposite of universal, which is something very specific. If this is unlimited, then this would be limited. So if love is truly unlimited, if it is a truly interconnected woven fabric of our experience and transformation, then it's the limited that seems to be in opposition to the unlimited. So then what is this limited nature? Well, I know my thoughts are limited because I, I don't speak, I don't think in Chinese. <laughs> um, although I'd love to, um, I'd love to speak every language in the world, but there's a limitation here and there's a limit to my ego, my sense of self. There's a limit to my needs. So there's a limited part of my experience and there's also an unlimited part of my experience. And so the question is, which one are we going to trust? <laughs> you know, if I trust this, which is thought forms, thinking, um, ego identity, what's going to serve me? I've noticed through direct and very painful experience at times that that doesn't work. <laughs> I don't feel that expansiveness that I actually 
is already happening. Like that's the wild thing about creativity. It's already happening. It's in the math, you could say. It's literally in the math in our skin and our bones. Creativity is already happening. So all we need to do is get out of our own way. <laughs> and notice that when we trust this finite sense of self, that we're not actually trusting that which is infinite, that which is universal, and that infiniteness, we know it when we feel it, that love, that connection, that... Um, intersubjectivity is what the, the sociologists love to call it, which is that we are automatically interconnected. Um, and there's a, Thich Nhat Hanh was a famous Buddhist monk, and he um, wrote a poem, a poem or a, a short sort of a phrase that talks about if you're a, a poet, then you're writing on paper, you'll know immediately that the piece of paper has the cloud inside it. Well, why? because the cloud rains and it allows for plants to grow and a tree will grow from that and where do we get paper from so paper is not separate from the cloud in fact really insightful person will see that paper is the cloud they are absolutely one and the same just in a different form sure it has a different expression sure but it is absolutely interconnected it is the same on some level so similarly for people is that i see you as a separate form right and i celebrate you in your separateness right like in in all that you you bring to this world and the fabulous work you're doing through creative conversations and and your own artwork and your desire to connect your psychology to to others like that is so specifically unique and beautiful it's very different than me on some level, but there's also this overlap, this interconnectedness that that I have with you. And so so there's these two that seem to be at play. So then my question is, what do I trust more? Do I trust our separateness, which is there and it's needed and it can be loved? Or do I trust that which is universal? It's like the ultimate game isn't it seeing through the apparent separateness to mm. beyond that to a bigger reality mm. so this apparent opposition you could also say is an invitation mm. and the so i'm when you were talking earlier about um appealing back that these apparent limitations of our finite minds and our, our uh, tendency to create compartments for people and events, if you look at it from a different angle, a more creative angle, if you will, then it really is an invitation to see what else, mm. what else is there. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what Absolutely. you think about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, and in fact, I think that's one of the hardest lessons that we as humans have. Um, and the reason why I say that is like uh, in today's challenge with like here in Canada, there's um, um, this kind of international news is that residential schools, we've now scientifically been able to see that um, children 
or unmarked graves are, are everywhere at these residential schools, which calls into question, again, the residential school system. And so is this something that we see as a, a blight on Canadian history, or do we see it as an opportunity, like you said? An opportunity to see that within Canadian culture, there is this history, this legacy of colonialism that has been deeply, deeply painful and traumatic to, I think, the entire nation, but obviously specifically to Indigenous peoples. And so if I can see that as an opportunity for change, and as we were just discovering, change is transformation. And what is transformation? Creativity. So if I can see that as an opportunity, then there will be transformation, not only in me as a person, but also in our culture and society. So then I need to look at, well, where's the opportunity in my biased thinking? Where's the opportunity when I see somebody like a a homeless person on the street or a drug addict or even a colleague at work who's just really grumpy and you know says something really mean to me like where's the opportunity there and that's hard because at least i know from from my own experiences then i have to face my own bias my own um, judgments my own worldviews my own past my own history my own trauma and it's far easier in today's distracted economy to seek distraction rather than to go to a movie, to go even sometimes to see friends, but for whatever, just to leave these painful conversations and to leave this painful experience and just to go out and, and live somewhere else in order to be able to stave off these challenges for a while. And many people are, are doing that for their whole lifetime. And I've, I've seen that, you know, and probably no family members who, who uh, have done that. Well, that's a very deep wondering. You know how there are so many people who see the atrocities and the injustices that are done in the world, and they either respond by tuning it out or getting very angry and fighting against it and both of those have some significant limitations mm -hmm. and yet if we can examine them and i'd love for you to talk a little bit more about this if you would if we could examine the challenges that we're facing from a, a social change perspective what that could be like Absolutely. Like, um, you know, anger is, uh, it can, it can be a very much of a resistive force, right? Like if, let's say the, let's say the school atrocities that we've discovered here, like I can get angry and push that away. In other words, well, that's, you know, that's bullshit. Like that, that's not, didn't really happen or, or they're making a big deal out of it. So that can be that anger energy, but to push away. But anger can also be used very much as an empowered energy where it can be a call to action. And some of the greatest actions have happened through anger. So we think of like Malcolm X's of the world or people who have really stood up to create change and transformed, and this is the key piece, transform anger, which is essentially about judgment 
Um, it's creating a judgment. It's saying that is wrong. And it's saying, and it's creating a separation to transform that into, into power and into action. And so I think that's what, as a culture, if we can do, if we can see the anger that can be here and um, uh, that is actually part of human experience, if that can be transformed into a call to action, societal action or personal action, then it no longer remains limited. It goes from that limited, isolated place which says me against you and it transforms into let's let's do this together it, that becomes an, a, a me to a we <laughs> to use the, the common sociological phrase so so that me to we that transformation um, that can be empowerment and that social movement for change so I see anger as as something that we that if anybody holds it, and I have certainly in my past, is that if I can see that as a, as, a, as a method to experience for its richness of the natural power of transformation that is waiting to happen within me and not get held on to the concepts that hold that anger into place, but to let the concepts go so that I can do the transformational work, not only internally, but externally with others, then we can start to see that um, that thrivingness that most of us actually want, not only internally but in the world. So another uh, aspect of uh, creativity is, well, actually, uh, I'd rather. I, I was going to explain it or propose a, an explanation, but I think that what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that that whatever emotions that we're having to an event, specifically a, a traumatic event, can be transformed to be a force for good. So that creativity actually is a force for good. And we don't usually think of it as that. We just think of, oh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a way of problem solving or doing something differently. But the way that I think you're inviting us to look at creativity and its transformational potential is that it really can be an enormously powerful force for change and for good in the world. Absolutely. And that word force is um, important because it also ties back into some of the science language. It's like mm. there's forces right, in the world. And um, there's this force of transformation. But I should clarify that creativity um, also has a destructive side, like we were talking about mm -hmm. before. Something that an economist back in the 1930s or 40s, I believe, um, talked about creative destruction. So he noticed that economies will, will go through this natural destructive process. Mm. And then out of the ashes, you might say, comes rebirth so as we saw in 2008-9 with the economic crash that happened there is that if we can't see the transformative potential of destruction then we just play the loops of destruction over and over again well that's now, a very important point 
yeah. to, look, to look beyond just the, the immediate, but see a bigger picture at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is where I think, again, it becomes really challenging in terms of human work, is that um, do I see destruction in my immediate life around me? So like, say a relationship. Let's say I had a fight with my partner. <laughs> and so there's a destructive element to that. Now, if I get stuck in that destructive phase, then I just play the loops of destruction. Like I, I go into, oh, you know, this is not going to work. Oh, I can't believe, you know, she did this and he did this, right? Over. <laughs> <laughs> but within that, as you were just putting your finger on, is that there's this possibility for transformation, this possibility for change within that. That can be a force for good. And so if I can see that challenge as an opportunity, then I can see it as an opportunity for transformation even in my relationship. Mm -hmm. And so what that usually means is letting go of that, that isolated, limited sense of self. And that's where humility comes into play. That's really hard. <laughs> because it's like, oh, I got to let go. I thought we were going to do this with the backyard. No, no, no. I want to do this with the backyard. Okay, okay, okay. Distraction, creative distraction. <laughs> right? allowing, uh, allowing the transformation to take place right here. <laughs> okay, okay. Let go, let go. Uh, oh, I notice when I let go that there's a lightness of being. There's, uh, and I'm not saying <laughs> I'm perfect in letting go and lord knows especially with the backyard i still have some work to do but uh, <laughs> but that's that that's that, that 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 natural allowing process of allowing this this coming and going you know this creation this destruction even within my relationship or even within the world and yet can be a call for good because like we were saying earlier intuitively love consciousness god the unlimited is the natural transformation process that's already happening. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to work at being a better artist. All we have to do is get out of our own way. <laughs> I know it sounds easy, but when yeah. you're in <laughs> yeah. mud, there's a little more to it than that. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> so I'm curious if we were going to take a little bit of a side road for a while. I'm curious how you got, you've done so many different things. We, we talked privately, you and I, about the time that you spent in India. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that now. Yeah. But it sounds like your path has always had this creative bent to it, this curiosity, this you've done so many different things how did that, did that, <laughs> how did that happen <laughs> uh, probably scatteredness on some level <laughs> but i think like you said uh, you know curiosity is really a big part of it in that i'm like an insatiably curious person um, about all parts of life mm -hmm. um, i studied math at university in my undergrad and then I also studied the arts and so um, somebody once asked me that something similar it's like Mike you've done all this stuff like how is it you know and 
what came out of that conversation with this friend is uh, what we call the golden thread. And like interwoven through this diverse patchwork of life is a golden thread of something that remains true. And that trueness, you could say that golden thread for me has been truth, love, creativity, this, this being transforming into becoming, this natural process that is universal. Some people call it, you know, the quest for, for truth or, you know, the young man going off to India to find himself. <laughs> Thailand. Or Thailand, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And indeed, that was uh, that was the absolute case. And in the case how I, I ended up in a, in a Buddhist monastery is I grew up very, 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 very strict religious background um, here in North America. And something didn't feel like there was a lot of truth there. I could sense it, but something didn't feel fully aligned. Like I, I could sense there was something more. And I picked up a book almost randomly at a book fair and um, it was by Canadian man who went did that he wanted to go find himself and he ended up in a monastery in thailand and so i i, I did that you went there too <laughs> i did yeah yeah and i got there to thailand and there was um they call, they call it a rains retreat in in thai buddhist um in monastic society is that they take a few months off every year for the rains to come for about three months and so i got there and it was closed <laughs> <laughs> So I went to another Buddhist monastery that was nearby and ended up being there for three months. And then I transitioned to another monastery for about 10 months. And... <laughs> Once the rains were over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, so I knew, though, that this, this intuition towards this call for truth, for understanding, for being, I knew that this, this, this quest wasn't just a sociological or young man's quest because it's a quest that we've seen in the literature in throughout the ages siddhartha right the classic siddhartha gautama yeah the buddha had a similar quest he left home and he went out into the unknown and and worked with samanas these um forest people and studied with them for years and years and years until one day he sat underneath a tree and and had a realization that was profound so so it, it is part of, I think, the human lineage to, to have this call. And you could look at that call as mythological. Um, Joseph Campbell talks about that this call for, for transformation is also creativity because this call is the natural transformative process that's already happening. It's just, do we hear it? Do we listen to it? Like I was saying at the beginning of this conversation. So, so I did that and I also knew that there were atrocities in the world. And in my travels, I saw very disturbed um, um, social conditions that I hadn't seen in the same context in, in my homeland. And so um, I ended up in India and um, was working on a project there in a small rural village. Um, and I was just finishing the project with my mentor, an Indian professor at one of the local universities. And we were sitting there at the bus on a, on a dirt road, and I had just finished my project for three or four months. And I noticed off in the distance in the field, there was a, 
a ceremony of some kind, a festival. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm familiar with most festivals. Well, not most, but a number of festivals in India. And um, I, I didn't recognize this one, so I asked her what, what festival this is, and she said, um, oh, it's not a festival, it's a funeral. And there were these men, and I was just sharing this with you in our private call. They had a platform on their shoulders between four men, and there was a woman, very regal, beautiful attire, sitting on top, and, and I thought she was alive and being celebrated, but she was deceased and found out that she had died by a dowry death which means that on her, the night of her wedding, her family couldn't supply the um, agreed-upon uh, dowry, which is a monetary compensation for the um, financial challenges that sometimes the male's family will take on by bringing another person into the family. So that wasn't paid, and um, he got angry, and, and he beat her to death. And I knew the family, so it was, you know, I just finished this project in this village, about a hundred homes in this village, and I was shocked, and I was, I was angry. How could this happen? And then there I could see it, you know, the anger in me was somehow connected to the anger in him on some level. The anger that is shared by many men in the world, and women. And how can I transform that? So then that was my quest to go back to school was actually because of that that event mm -hmm. it was like I, I need to investigate creativity not only for celebration for the arts but also for social change how can we use creativity to allow people to gather to transform even these very isolated singular limited events mm -hmm. to transform them into something much more universal much more unlimited which takes you know all levels of society culture um, uh, politics, for example. So in this little mini social lab that I um, was invited to come to India to work with um, several nonprofit organizations, a university, and uh, we created this little mini social lab, which got all these, you know, police, and there were nurses there, social workers, we got them all together to, to look at how can we create change. And then during that time, um, the demonetization of India occurred, uh, which meant that all the money was no longer useful. And so I had to go to the banks and I was lining up. So it disrupted uh, the project. And ultimately the um, project was not fulfilled in its fullest ability. But um, we did a small sort of version of the project. And um, yeah, so now I'm looking to find funding to go back and maybe to complete the rest of the project. You know, what I was hearing as you were describing this was your, your focus on taking me to we. How can I transform this anger? How can I transform mm. what I'm feeling about this event and take it to a larger level where we can all we can all benefit, we can all learn something, that something transformational actually is possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And, um, and this is not to sort of sweep the me under the carpet, as it were. You know, we see that in the world is that, that um, there's a fear of... Um, 
you know, what happened in the 1920s in Russia. So, which is, uh, um, uh, the word is sort of escaping me, uh, socialism, right? So that's this we, where the we becomes the ultimate form. Therefore, the individual needs to be suppressed. And that's what happened with communism. So I do want to be careful that I'm not saying that we is the ultimate, because when when we becomes some kind of political platform or societal standard and ignores the individual, yeah. well, we can see where that goes. Yeah. But it's opposite, which is the me-focused societies, you know, which is to some degree more prevalent today, I would say. And many people actually say that, not just me. <laughs> but um, me-focused societies um, sort of say, well, I need to be first. Oh, now, you know, there's somebody next to me and... Yeah, we're all standing up for me, 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 my rights. So then what happens is my rights takes over your rights because our rights will always differ on some level. So that's where it becomes really challenging as well. So me-centered societies, or you could say a totalitarian me-centered society and a totalitarian we-centered society, neither of those is the answer. What we need to do, if you ask me, is to, to find a balance between this limited nature which is beautiful right like you're beautiful in your uniqueness but to find balance with that and this we culture of it's actually truer Mm. in my experience than our separateness what's truer is our connectedness yeah and i think that's something that i'm so glad you said that because i think that's something that needs to be said more you know Mm. that there's a universality that is important to recognize that it's not uh, totalitarian in its nature, but it's a it's a deep connection that we all have. You know, mm-hmm. every when when I am me centered and I say I this I'm I'm getting this for me. You're on your own, and yet that idea isn't going to be just for that one person it's for their loved ones as well and Mm. if we it just seems to me if we step back a little bit that we all want the same things we're all hungry for the same things Mm -hmm. and i think it's fear-based don't you that the denial i'm going to get mine but you're on your own you got to do it your way you know that kind of separation is Mm. it's just a form of short-sightedness yeah, I think, uh, I think that, yeah, that's, I, I agree with you, is that uh, this, this sort of separateness that can be created, right, when, when we sort of say, no, I need to do this on my own or, or whatever have you, is that uh, it's those limitations. It's mm-hmm. like there's a belief that's been instilled by our culture and our parents, etc., that says, look, if you take care of yourself, you'll be fine. so then it's like i gotta protect me and in many regards uh if we totally give that up well then we'll stand there and a tiger will come and saber-toothed tiger will come along and eat us so we we know that there is an an instinctual sense to also protect this but like you were sort of saying if it's always out of fear then the fear of the saber-toothed tiger is everywhere you know like even in our next door neighbor (laughs) Or in our colleague at work, when they're being a jerk one day, right? Then there's a temptation to judge them 
and to treat them like the saber-toothed tiger, which secretly is the same jerkedness that that person might be giving to us, but we're just being quiet about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it's like, oh, he's such a jerk. And then meanwhile, we're acting like a jerk and to the jerk. Right. So it's like, <laughs> so it's like, so one of the most recent meditations I've been doing is can I allow the jerk to be a jerk? Can I love them for their uh, unique expression in the world? And can I hold space for them and still remain true to this weeness, this interconnectedness, this consciousness, this love, this being that sort of unites us all? And like you said before, it's harder to say that out loud than to do it sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, and can I allow the? Can I allow myself to be a jerk? Oh, that's a oh man, good yeah, beautiful point. It's like because there are moments when I've been a jerk, maybe a few more than I wish, but uh, but there's these moments that we all have, you know, at the grocery store or parking or you know, and somebody cuts us off or or says something rude, and I was like, well, you you did that, you know, so then. I, I know within me, sometimes I judge the jerk within me, which is a small war inside. Yeah. And, and that doesn't, I've, I've noticed it doesn't solve things. <laughs> I've noticed that too. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. You know, I was thinking when you were speaking earlier that you were uh, in, in, the way I heard it was that you were, um, you were talking about the hero's journey, you know, mm. where the person's going along, la la la, and then suddenly, wham, something happens, you know, whether it's one event or a series of smaller events that adds up to something big that causes that person to go on a quest. And I, I'm wondering if the stages of the hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell talked about it, is very similar if not identical to the creative process oh what a beautiful point you know we did a workshop a while ago about the hero's journey and it was using a creative process mm -hmm. and um it was a theater piece we created uh we used to run a theater company years ago and the piece used the hero's journey to investigate david thompson on this quest to um, make it to the other side of you know, this landmass called Canada and on a fur trade. And, um, and what's interesting about that, this call for, for transformation, usually, at least from my understanding of the creative process as well, also involves a certain acceptance of the call. So that perturbation, as they say in the sciences, that sort of disturbing force or that disturbing factor there's a temptation to say like no 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 no, not me or or if it's very personal um you know if there's a jerk at work it's like no i don't want to deal with him or her right i don't want to deal with that so then that's a moving away from the call that's going back into the old patterns and maybe that's necessary if a person is dealing with trauma they actually may need to not heed the call in that moment mm -hmm. so just to acknowledge that um but in the creative process, part of that perturbation, that disturbance, 
is to also accept it. And then that's that transformation process. It's like once the call happens, it's like, oh man, you know, I've been in corporate world for the last, you know, 30 years or something. And it's like, I want to become a creative therapist or, or whatever it is, right? And it's like the call is there. The disturbance has sparked something within me and I can't look back now. So then to, to accept that is a, is a deep part of it. And part of that is the allowance of the creative process to allow that perturbation to move through us, to, to allow the disturbance to be experienced instead of repressed, to allow it to move through us. And then, that, and then once that starts to be, you know, once there's movement, that dynamic transformation starts to take place. And like you were saying on the, on the creative call of um, Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey, which is cyclic, to go into the heart of the dragon, battle the dragon, and bring back the treasure is to come back to where we are with a new understanding. And, and that's very much creative, too. That's that. Some people see it as a spiral. So, so instead of a circle where it ends, where it began, it actually brings you to a new level and a further spiral to a new level and a new level. And that's emergent. That's that emergence process of creativity where there's always something new in the transformation, there's something new that's discovered. There's something new that's seen, whether it's on a personal journey or in a system like chemistry. You know, in the chemical transformation, yeah, there's processes that are similar to the previous one, but now we see a new result. It has a new color to it, or the, the life form is just slightly adapted to its environment so that the species is slowly changing and changing and adapting, changing, changing, adapting. Reminds me, and maybe you know the, the verse better than I do, of the uh, T.S. Eliot poem about going out and, and coming back and recognizing the place for the first time, mm. knowing it again in a deeper level. Beautiful. You know, I don't know it um, very well at all. I, I have a small memory, so I, I'd be really curious if you could share that uh, share that passage after we... Yes, I'll have to go find it because my memory just won't recall it at the moment. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and it's true, right? Like we find ourselves, sometimes we do find ourselves back at the beginning and we haven't spiraled up to the next level. <laughs> go, <laughs> and man, we have to here I go again. Call again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another perturbation, another disturbance, right. another jerk walks into the office and I still can't get over that. It's like these lessons keep coming back and back and back because they keep coming back because, like we were saying, Transformation is the process. It's already happening. Whether we heed the call, whether we listen to it, or whether we push it back and stay in our usual patterns is the difference between life and death. I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but I'm sure you're familiar with Benjamin Zander, the conductor. Oh, yeah. Well, he was... I think he's still alive, but he's probably in his 80s now. But he is, is the most enthusiastic, passionate lover of music. And he talked about seeing a challenge or, or a limitation and saying, how wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so if we have a perturbation, it's like fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I... Yes, absolutely. That's awesome. You know, in, in my uh, young, when I was studying at university the first time around, <laughs> there was a teacher that I had, and whenever we made a mistake, they would say, Opa! Like the, 
she, she had a Greek background and so there's a breaking of the plates. I apologize if I'm misunderstanding the tradition, but, and so every time somebody would make, you know, a mistake what the rest of the class would see as a mistake, she'd be like, Opa. And then the whole class in chorus would go, Opa. <laughs> and then there would be this sort of celebratory moment in which, um, the class and the individual could say, okay, yes, that happened. Shed it off. No need to feel ashamed. Yeah. Shed it off. But what you're talking about too is like that's a full embrace of those disturbances in our lives, those jerks in our lives, right. those um, you know, those painful moments, the traumas, and and that's hard for many of us to for sure to see. Yeah. Well, I don't know how we did it this fast, but we're at the top of the hour. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and I just want to thank you so much for being on the call and ask you if there is anything else you'd like to leave us with, how people can reach you. Um, Both or one, whichever you prefer. What's, what's coming to me right now is just, uh, so just something that um, uh, Whitehead once said which is just um, the phrase that constantly runs through my mind is ceaseless change. This universe is in a process of ceaseless change. So the question becomes, will we move with it or will we hold back? And, um, and in terms of uh, how to get a hold of me, um, so in, in, I guess an email address, uh, Word and that's msunrau at mail.ubc.ca. And um, people can email me there if they like. Lovely. <laughs> well, what a treat. Thank you again so much. Yeah, thank you. So lovely to see you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone who's been listening or watching. We certainly appreciate your being here and we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And stay tuned for the next episode. So bye for now.